Hello and welcome back to The Latecomers. I'm Amity. I'm Lemuel. I just did a little dance. Did you like it? It was lovely. This week on The Latecomers, we are going to talk about everybody's favorite Stephen King movie, Don't Even Lie. You know that's what you say so that it doesn't look like you're a horror junkie. That's right, it's The Shawshank Redemption. I had no idea. I've never seen this movie before. I don't think that's true. I did not hear of it before. Shawshank what? Shank? Shank? Redemption? No. So before we get into it, mm-hmm. how's your week? Um, it was really interesting, and mostly the weekend. I went to farm country. We did, and I went to a place called Patterson. Yes, and there were pig races, which I did not see. Oh, I have the and video for you. There were bake sales, which I did not see. And what I did see was the inside of a corn maze for close to two hours. Yeah, so here's the thing. I said, hey guys, we should go do like an autumn adventure. Autumn. And we should go to one of these farms. It's a pumpkin patch. There's a corn maze. Let's do it. So I initiated it. And then four minutes into the corn maze, I was like, this corn maze is going to kill me. I can't do it. So I did not take into account that corn is planted in in bumpy rows. Also, corn falls down. So then there's corn to step on and and hulls, husks to slip on. And I was very quickly, like, concerned that uh, my ankle was going to break and then they were going to have to drag me through the rest of this corn maze. It was also very hot. Very hot. Uh, it was the middle of the day when we got there. And so I said, well, I know I initiated this, but I don't know that I can do this. And then Stephanie, our other roommate, said, also, my toe hurts. (laughs) And I was wearing the wrong pants. So we bailed. But the gentleman sitting across Mm -hmm. from me heard when we came in that if he got to all of the stations in the maze, Mm -hmm. we would each get a free pumpkin. And he made it his mission to get us. Pumpkins. At the risk of life and limb. Life and limb. It took him two uh, hours, or just shy of two, two hours, hours yeah. and he had to go back in. We saw him three times come out and then go back in, because there were more. So here's, the, they left you, they gave you what looked like a Celtic knotwork kind of pattern, and you're supposed to follow it that. It was a picture of the first moon landing. <laughs> to get to these 12 stations of the cross of the corn god. And you had their, their fence posts sunk into the ground that had signs on them that said station number one, number two, number three. And you had a hole punch, and they were all different. Yeah. You take this card that they gave you, with had, which had little kernels of corn illustrated at the bottom, and you punched those with the different-shaped mm-hmm. hole punchers. The problem was that that map in no way reflected what the actual maze was, I later oh, found out. Oh, no. Because they kept depicting parts of it as closed off that weren't. Well, that's because people mm. ran through things I think there was and also mushed them. That. The people had punched through the, the corn walls. And also, it really didn't give you a sense of the scale of it because it was, I'm not sure how many miles around it was. Um, the, the perimeter was five miles? The perimeter, yeah. Well, it wasn't that. It was... If you come out here, uh-huh. you've gone 2.2 miles. Okay. And by the time I looked at it, doing the whole thing and going to all 12 of the things was like a five-mile thing right. on this r- rocky terrain. And I was like, oh, I, c- 
I don't yeah. think I can and it was do very that. Hot. There were, as I was walking through it, there were the ripped up shreds of maps all over the place. And when we brought it back and redeemed it, mm-hmm. the guy at the pumpkin shed was like, oh, you guys did it. And I was like, well, one of us did. But yeah. we all reap the benefits. There are three beautiful pumpkins sitting somewhere. Behind you. Oh, okay. <laughs> like, where did they go? Intently. Okay. Yeah, it, it, I just for some reason got it into my head that this w- I would not be able to look myself in the mirror if I did not get these pumpkins. The worst part of it is the last of the pumpkins was the hardest to find. The last of the stations, and yeah. I deliberately went out and went to the pumpkins in the farthest end of the field first, which I'm really happy with because I think people are going numerically. Yeah, and, so and they were not in any kind nine, of order Nine, ten, and on eleven are way out in the middle of nowhere. There was It was divided into a blue part and a brown part. And the brown part was just, there was nothing around it. There was no other structures around it to help. So I did those difficult ones first, and then I went to the other easier ones that were clustered closer together, and I right. think that's the reason why I got through it. Right. Because I made the strategic decision to go, I don't want to be exhausted, and then wandering out in the middle of this cornfield. Out in the middle, of, and then having to get all the way back. Right. Yeah. And as it was, it, by the end of it, I had uh, I actually asked for help, and I was heading out of the maze and saw the one I was missing. And okay. just walked up to it very casually and, and punched the hole. But it was pretty crazy because it, it got hot, then it got very windy. Yeah. Out of nowhere. This is farm country. And um, and there were moments when it just got kind of surreal. You're wandering around. Yeah. And I can, I can totally get the children of the corn thing now, yeah. which I, you know, yeah. as a city kid, I could never quite get. Oh, right. You're walking between these rows. They all begin to look alike. Uh-huh. And... You start hearing, there were other people looking, their whole families at some point, mm-hmm. but they just come across as echoes and you can go looking around for a while and not find You're like, you don't know where they're coming from you and just where they're noises. going. So yeah. yeah, it was pretty, there were times when it was pretty creepy that and I felt like the, um, some of the corn had the corn fungus in it. So it made all sorts of weird distorted faces peeping at me. It oh, was no. a very strange experience. But I got through, we have pumpkins and I now have sympathy for Stephen King characters who get lost after arguing in a car. Yep. Whether so, they're in grass or corn. Right. Well, no, but children of the corn starts <laughs> the know. whole time into the corn country. So so what was your weekend like? Um, I went and bailed on a corn maze two items in. Then I got to see pig races. Pig races, which I missed. Um, I have the video. I videoed it for you. You should post it for, for uh, and, our viewing public. Uh, the the only thing I didn't like about the pig race was the pedestrian ass names they gave to the pigs. Oh really? There was a black and white pig. Its name was Oreo. There was a pink pig. Its name was Petunia. There was an orange pig. I didn't even know pigs came in orange. This is a ginger ass pig, and its name was Pumpkin. And I was like, "Come on, y'all! I know that they're." Catering to a I, child audience, and so. it was a great place for kids. There was um, kind of like the sort of uh, like a huge sandbox that was just corn kernels. Yes, which I thought was very cool. There was a big hay ziggurat. Right. Uh, there was um, this. They had um, put on these little. Um, it was almost like a train, uh-huh. but it wasn't a train. It was in the back of like a four-wheel drive thing, and it was all these like little two-wheeled cows. They were painted like cows, and you'd sit in them, and then they'd drive you through the thing, through the, the, like a hayride thing, yeah. but for kids. And there was um, something called a corn cannon, 
But it was shooting tennis balls, so that was a lot. There was also an inflatable tarp yes. that kids could jump up and down on. Yes. I think there was a trampoline underneath it. So it all looked like there were kids having a lot of fun there. Yes. But we had no children. We had no children. We were all adults. I just got lost in the corn. That was that was my fun for the day. I, I actually had dreams about it. It was nice <laughs> to be outside. I, yes, we were outside for a while, and we got A&W on the way back, oh, so yes. worth it. <laughs> yes. Proof it, that God loves me and wants me to be happy. So, delicious root beer. <laughs> delicious root beer. Sometimes it's really all you need. So... Since the and then when we got home, we watched the Shawshank Redemption. Exactly, no one was watching corn. <laughs> Although we had to split it up because this movie was pretty long, and it was t- I was tired, even though I didn't walk fifteen miles of the corn. <laughs> so we did split it up, but we did watch the whole thing. It's on demand currently via TNT on our dish. Uh, on and it's unedited. Actually. And it was unedited. They did do the swearing. There was swearing in it immediately. So we're like, oh, I guess this will be fine. Right. <laughs> so this movie came out in 1994, September of 1994. It just entered the ninth grade. For many people, the ninth grade is uh, the worst. <laughs> it's literally the best year of school I ever had. <laughs> so... Uh, that's where I was in my life. Did I see this movie in the theater? I did not. So when did you see it? Later than that, probably when it was on television. I would say probably for the first time in like 96 or 97. Uh-huh. Uh, I have seen this movie many, many times, almost never beginning to end. This is probably only the second time I've watched the, whole thing. the entire thing. Maybe the third time, because I think we watched it. I remember specifically uh, we watched it as a group in college once Uh because, and I made the joke when we were watching it right at the beginning, the warden says, I believe in two things, discipline and the Bible. And my friend, Joshua Daly, who is one of the funniest people I've ever met in my life, goes, (laughs) just real quiet in front of me, discipline with the Bible, whack. And Which is actually what I got growing I up. Laughed, so exactly. <laughs> I laughed exactly. I laughed until something came out of me that shouldn't have come out of me. Okay. I think I snorted soda through my nose or something oh, like that. Not right. like no, I didn't no, pee no. or anything, but um, yeah. So I st- and I st- every time I watch it, I still say that. But this is a movie that oh, if it's on TNT and it started forty five minutes ago, I'll just put it on and have well, it on in the background. So I have not watched beginning to end and. It suffers when you don't, because I had, my feelings about it had deteriorated over the 20 years that I've been watching it, but I gotta say, watching it beginning to end, I'm back to loving it. I'm like, back to, oh, this movie is good. Is there problematic stuff? Yes. This movie was directed by Frank Darabont. It is his first film. We will discuss. Right. He was not good at directing at this time. <laughs> well, he had no discipline, I think, is probably I the best way right. to put it. Because he'd been a screenplay writer. Mm-hmm. And he'd been a screenplay writer mostly And he on, wrote the screenplay for this, I believe. Yeah, but yes. he had done mostly sort of low-end stuff. Right. Where there wasn't really a high demand for drama in some of the things that he'd done before. Right. And then they gave him $25 million and uh-huh. people who know... The cast in this movie is amazing. 
trust them. Right. The cinematographer he got... is one of the greatest of all time. Is, it's Roger Deakins, right? Right. So one of the greatest cinematographers of all time. Trust them. But I think as a first-time director, he wanted to hold so tightly to the name director and respect me that he clashed with a lot of people during the filming. And we'll talk about that sort of at the end. So it actually came out the 14th of October, 1994. What is that? 25 years ago? Yeah. We're cu- we just passed its anniversary. Like I said, $25 million budget. Made its money back. Did it ever? Uh, barely, actually. Really? I mean, I well... I imagine on initial release, it did. This is one of those films that might have been a slow burn to being a classic. That's true. And I would guess, because it does have this sort of cult status after the fact, Uh that its distribution rights were pretty valuable. Yeah. But it only made $28 million, uh, $28.6. Breaking Even is a a thing, though. For a first-time director. For sure. For a status project, too. Oh, this is funny. Oh, this is interesting. And what I just said is not true because Ted Turner owned the rights and sold it to himself. (laughs) TNT has the distribution, which is why we watched it the way that we watched it. Ted Turner, the Donald Trump of his time. Yeah, maybe. Although, Ted Turner has a whole bunch of money. Yeah. (laughs) So... After the film gained popularity, Ted Turner sold the television rights to TNT, his own network, for much lower than normal for such a big film. So, so because it's inexpensive to show, they show it all. The, it's on 26 times a year, probably. It's on like every other weekend on TNT. Well, but I mean, is it, is it one of those cases where the film gets popularity because, because of the frequent television showings? Because there are films who have... It's a Wonderful Life was a failure on its release and then uh, was shown on television every year all the time and became... No, it actually... Well I'm, I'm seeing... I'm, I'm pulling all of these from IMDb. So mm-hmm. mm, trivia on IMDb, take it for what it's worth. But despite the film's box office quote-unquote failure, which like I said, they made right. their money back, Warner Brothers shipped 320,000 rental copies to video stores a figure that a spokesman freely admitted was out of whack with the film's performance in theaters. The film became the most rented video of 1995 and one of the highest grossing video rentals of all time. It was a movie that either, you know what I bet happened? Absolutely abhorrent marketing. Nobody right. knew that this movie was coming out or what I didn't it know was. What the movie was about when it first came it, out. They also, in any of the, uh-huh. the video or the um, things that I've ever seen, Stephen King's name is not we largely seen, associated right. with. We have not seen Stephen King's drama except for Stand By Me, really. Right. We didn't get a lot of that. So I think that also might have skewed expectations if he was involved or if he wasn't. I, I frankly can't remember back that far as to the film. I just remember that in agreement with what you said, I had no idea what the movie was about. Right. So... The original poster, I'm looking at it, it says along the top, Fear can hold you prisoner, hope can set you free. Tim Robbins, Morgan Freeman, The Shawshank Redemption, this fall. Stephen King, nowhere on here. Now, I don't know if you don't want to associate 
this with a horror and no. automatically pigeonhole it. But here's how you fix that. From the writer of Stand By Me. Yeah. From the writer of Misery and Stand By Me would actually be a good... We've got an Oscar in there. Uh-huh. We've got one of the greatest 80 movies of the 80s in mm-hmm. there. Put that on here right. and and then market it. I bet it was marketed terribly. You put more thought into it, obviously, than they did. <laughs> well, maybe, but also, you know, hindsight and all that. And, and ladies and gentlemen and all others, uh, Amity Armstrong will now uh, retroactively do the marketing for John Carter, which is a good movie that needed a lot more or a lot better marketing than it got. Oh, here you go. Actually, it only it was a box office disappointment, earning only sixteen million during its in the initial theatrical run. The other money, I guess, has been because they re-release it. Mm-hmm. People will go see it in theaters now, yeah. and it's worth seeing in in, in theaters now. I, think. I would say so. Okay, so you want to get into the sure, plot? So let's do the o- overarching. If y'all haven't, se- first of all, uh, the, I heartily recommend watching this movie beginning to end, especially if you haven't seen the whole thing in a long time. Like I said, I probably had seen, I have seen this entire movie fifteen times, right. but the entire the entire thing beginning to end three times max and it is better when you watch the whole thing yeah so our one sentence overview oh i like this one this is once again from imdb's all right explain this to me like i'm a two-year-old okay because there's an element to this thing i just cannot get through my thick head two imprisoned men bond over a number of years finding solace and eventual redemption through acts of common decency that's pretty good it also this is a sort of a side note, but the world right now is a bit of a shit show for a lot of people. News and then also personal stuff. And this movie's kind of nice because bad people get what they deserve. Well, bad people are punished. Yeah. And Decency kind of does reign over these men's lives overall. Now, do I think that the current prison system should be abolished? Yes, I do. (laughs) And there are some extraordinarily brutal things in this movie that I had forgotten. With though an innocent person, and we're not sure. We don't know that. Yes, we don't know that. Spoiler alert, we're going to spoil the shit out of this. Yeah. I don't know why I'm saying well, that now. It's that old. You should have seen this film by now. Do better. If you haven't watched it and you and you think you ever would, turn us off. Watch it. It's two hours and 30 minutes. We'll be here when you get back. Awesome. Okay. So Andy Dufresne is uh, Tim Robbins. He has been convicted of murdering his wife. And her lover, she he had uh, found that she had, was having an affair with a golf pro, which is, it's, oh, it's 1947. So this is a, also a period piece, which sometimes you forget because prison is prison is prison, right? It's pretty unchangeable. Yeah. He went outside, he, he went to confront them with a gun and some bourbon. And his story is that he's starting to sober up and realize that he needed to get out of there, and he did not confront them. 
but they were killed that night. And so he is found guilty. Sentenced to two consecutive life sentences at the Shawshank State Penitentiary. Shawshank is located in Stephen King's universe just outside of Castle Rock. It is featured prominently in the Castle Rock television show. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is not a real prison. (laughs) It does not actually exist. The narrator of the of the movie is a different character, not Andy Dufresne, but Red. Uh, his name is Ellis Redding, but he goes by Red. And his name, the man who plays him, is Morgan Freeman. And this is where you get Morgan Freeman narrating everything from here on out. Is this the first thing that he you know, narrated? I, don't I think know. it he might be. He did a lot of educational television. Oh, okay. I have narrated something at some point but but his voiceover does a lot of the lifting in this movie it actually works pretty well and voiceover can go very badly yeah. in uh I had a screenwriting teacher tell me that you only use voiceovers for effect that it generally is completely unnecessary it can be and and it it is an easy thing to lean on right i felt like and a good test of it is watching the two or two of the many different cuts of Blade Runner. Okay. Oh, and right. And seeing which one works better. I like the voiceover because it really tied it back into film noir. Right. Other people didn't like it, but I yeah. really did feel that movie was so mystifying at times that having a little guidance along the way yeah. actually helped. This movie has voiceover that works, and Stand By Me has voiceover yeah. that works, I would think. I, I would say. Um, I think. Uh, I wanted to call him Robert Redford. That's not his name. What's his name? I'm not sure who you're talking about. Stand by me. Who's oh. doing the voiceover? <sighs> Richard Dreyfus. Richard Dreyfus. I'm so sorry, Mr. Who Dreyfus. is not at all Robert Redford. I know, but their names get confused. I know the difference between them, mm-hmm. but their names get confused in my head. I'm young. So, Red is our narrator. He has been in prison for 20 years when the story starts. He is denied parole after saying he has definitely been rehabilitated and is no longer a danger to society. He is a murderer. He he admits to committing murder when he was younger. Uh, we don't know the details other than he says he's the only guilty man in Shawshank because everybody there is innocent. He also, having been there for 20 years, he has made a niche for himself as a smuggler. He is a man who can get things. And so we start the story with Andy on his first day and what they do to you, which is fucking terrible. <laughs> it's terrible. They lead all these men in. They strip them naked. They hose them down with what appears to be a fire hose. Yeah. They... they De-louse them. De-louse them. What is that? Do you know? I'm not sure exactly what it is, only that he mentions that it burns and it stings, which uh, used to happen to people coming over the border to work. Oh, God, a, uh, yeah. I bet rebellion. they... Yeah, there's a, a his, there's a history of this practice. I'm not sure that it was effective. I think the <coughs> the substances that were used were caustic, so it affected the people adversely anyhow. Uh, oh, this insecticide contained DDT. Yeah, well, that'll hurt. Applied to clothes and undergarments to prevent under, uh, to prevent attack. 
attacks, but they just throw the powder on their front yeah. back as they're wet from being hosed down. Mm-hmm. And then they are marched through the cell blocks to their cells nude, carrying their uh, bedding and their uniform. Uh, it's terrible. And the prisoners that are already there have are taking bets, but we don't know what they're betting on. But then yeah. we find out it's who's going to cry first. And Red bets that tall drink of water with a silver spoon up his ass. And who he's talking about, of course, is Andy Dufresne. Uh, he was, on the outside, we should say, a vice president of a bank. So not a hard man. <laughs> and... Uh, Andy never makes a sound that first night. Uh, the person who wins that bet uh, wins it in a really unfortunate way because not only do, does he sort of send the man over the edge, the man goes so far over the edge that he is beaten mercilessly, mercilessly he by the guards. The of of uh, Byron Hadley, who's the Byron the, Hadley, who is everybody's favorite, Clancy Brown. Clancy Brown, so young. Such a jawline on Mr. Brown. He looks good in this movie, but he is a statistic. Well, fuck. this is the first time I saw Clancy Brown, all well over six foot of him. He was, and this is a tall guy movie, by the way. Yes, Everyone there's a lot of tall men tall. in this movie. I think Tim Robbins is not yeah, anything Robbins less is, than six four. Right. But um, Clancy Brown was the villain in Highlander, the very first Highlander movie. He was playing a, a sadistic. Uh, warrior from the caucus, I think, and he just plays that part wildly. He's, I don't know if you're familiar with the movie, he actually goes and stuffs out candles in churches. That's how much of a jerk he is. So, yeah, I always The candle that you've lit so that your (laughs) loved one can get saved, and he's just like, no. He just goes and puts them out. It's it's pretty I like the idea that God's like, oh, I guess I didn't hear that then. But yeah, he's just that kind of jerk. There's there's nothing that he and he does that so casually. And there's another really horrifying scene in the film where he goes driving down a freeway in the middle of the night, just running people down because he can. Oh, good. Because so again, he's immortal. He so he had a great plays, introduction. He can play evil very well. Right, and he can play just very friendly and affable and lovely. Too. He's in the current show Emergence as uh-huh. Grandpa, basically, yeah. and he's great. And yeah. I'm like. I'm terrified of you, but also, can I have a hug? Like, he's one of those actors like Michael Rooker. And I bet he's oh, I'm super sure he nice. He's very nice. The, <laughs> actually, around the same time as Highlander, there was a special done by the director who did La Bamba, I think. La Bamba. And he did a, a series of segments for public television about Mexican American heritage. And Clancy Brown played a journalist who was very famous for following uh, Pancho Villa during the revolution. Okay. And uh, and that was really odd because I'm going, that's the same guy. You know? Yeah. It's pretty unusual. So, um, oh, and so um, this this man is beaten to, to unconsciousness by Hadley and then is dragged to the infirmary where the doctors had already gone home, and by the time they got there the next morning, he was dead. So he won all of the cigarettes that he won at the death of another human being. So not great, not ideal. Uh, After about a month, 
Andy uh, comes up to Red and uh, asks him to procure something for him. And that something is a rock hammer, which is like a tiny pickaxe. Like, super small, like six inches. Like a pickaxe you could do dental work with. And uh, then later he asks for a large picture of Rita Hayworth. He asks for Rita Hayworth. He just says, can you get me Rita? Right as we're watching, was it Gilda? Yes. In the, um, all the men are watching a movie and it's Gilda. And I guess they just play the same movie over and over again because Andy says she's, he's already seen this three times this week. Uh, and Andy is working in the laundry. And he is also targeted by the sisters who are referred to in the film as bull queers. Right. Uh, you know, Andy says, do you think it would matter if I told them I wasn't gay? Which I don't know if that's the language of 1947. He said homosexual. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And Red's response is, neither is he. You have to be human. You have to, to be human to be gay mm-hmm. or to be homosexual. So they just took by force and they took from Andy regularly. He got very hurt several times. Right. including once right after he asks for Rita Hayworth, he gets pulled into the projection room and tries to fight them, and they... Well, in, and, and as it happens, there are some times where he's so, uh, he resists them so uh, vehemently that they just decide to beat the hell out of him. Yeah. And he's not molested as much as he's just beaten, beaten. to within an inch of his life. M- my sense is, though... They also are... are well, they mentioned specifically in that incident in the yeah. projection booth that they didn't rape him. Yes, they, they didn't just, rape him that night. They right. just beat him so badly that he was in the infirmary for a month. Which I can't imagine what prison infirmaries were like in 1940. Not great. It just sounds horrible. Uh, and then Boggs, who's the head of this group, um, is sent to the hole for a week. But when he gets out of the hole... Oh, no, we have, we'll get there in a second. Um... So in 1949, after Andy's been there for two years, he doesn't have the Rita Hayworth picture yet. He does have the rock hammer. Um, They, (laughs) by sheer luck of uh, knowing how to get things, they are going to be re... And there's there's a weird disconnect. So they have to re-tar the roof, which is outdoor labor, which everybody wants to do because they don't want to be cooped up inside. Now, later, we see them out working in a field, <laughs> so I'm like, well, so there's other outdoor labor, too, but they they put their names in for a drawing to get this mm-hmm. sort of plum gig, and Red and Andy and the main group of guys, including Sadler, William Sadler... He's playing Haywood. ...is right. playing Haywood, yes. He's the uh, sort of the third of their group. They also There's also Brooks. He's the librarian. Who's James Whitmore. Veteran yeah. character actor James Whitmore, and we'll get to him in a second because he's, he's really wonderful. Fix in. Film. So yeah. as they're doing this on like day two, Hadley, our screw, our guard, is bitching about how he is going to be taxed to oblivion on an inheritance he got. He got he he got a thirty five thousand dollar inheritance, but by the time that the IRS gets through with him, he will barely have money to buy a car and then the attacks on that car is going to be even more like yeah just screwed by taxes like you know like it's, it's really kind of a 
awful complaining being that he's in front of men who will never drive a car again. Right. It's pretty gross. Right. But he's not complaining. At least he's not complaining to them. He's complaining right. to the other guards that are up there. There were a lot of guards up there uh-huh. for so few men, but that's uh-huh. fine. I guess when they're messing with hot tar, you don't want to let them think that they can overpower you. No. And Andy goes up to Hadley in calm as can be and just says, do you trust your wife? Which is a ballsy-ass thing to just say to somebody. I think that if we... <laughs> with a weapon. Andy Dufresne, in the context of a modern interpretation of his character, I would say he's almost in the spectrum. Yeah, I think that's right. With the way that he very... I don't want to say thoughtless, but he just steps into situations without thinking first, which yeah. in the end turns out to save him. Yeah. But it also explains uh, his later explanation to Redding, or Red, yeah. about his uh, wife. About his wife, yeah. Saying, I was a hard person to get to know. I don't think he could help Like it. a closed book, and yeah. so it doesn't occur to him that leading in with, can you trust your wife, is probably the worst possible yeah, thing no, to say. Yeah, no, because that really sounds like you're going to say, I'm going right. to fuck your wife, and don't to do a that. sadist, <laughs> an um, armed sadist at that. So after being held over the ledge, mm-hmm. and having all of the other convicts like freaking out like what the fuck are you doing he basically says look you can gift your wife the money a chunk of money Mm. more than this a chunk of money and it it, the irs can't touch it so as long as you don't think she's gonna abscond right this is how you can get your money but you need somebody to drop those yes you need somebody to drop those papers like a lawyer and they're gonna cost some money but i mean i could do it and all I'd really ask is some beers, three beers each for my coworkers, because a man feels like more like more like a man when he's working outside. When I think he calls them suds, suds yep. when he can have some suds, and I'm like, oh, gross. <laughs> and he fills out the paperwork apparently, and they all have beer. He does not partake because he does not drink anymore because he was in a blind stupor when he was supposedly killing his wife and that did not lead to anything good so he does not drink everybody else drinks um and at the same time uh so now we've got hadley sort of on his side looking out for him like okay and he's brought to the warden's attention at the same time this is when uh he has asked for rita and is immediately assaulted by boggs put Mm. in the infirmary for a month and when he comes out he has rita hayworth at no charge. Welcome back. And Hadley has crippled Boggs. So right. Boggs got a week in the hole for putting Andy in the infirmary. And as soon as he got out, he is beaten so badly that he is transferred to a minimum security prison because he no longer has the use of his legs. Not only and that, he he's cannot eat with straw, I think is what the way that he puts it. Yep. So I think that was revenge... Uh, like the prison guard whose affections are fickle, but he did him a solid. Right, exactly. And um, the warden, who is Samuel Norton, is our warden. He Mm. is a quote-unquote man of God. (laughs) He's deeply not that. But he purports to be, he believes in two things, discipline and the Bible. He reassigns Andy after asking if he likes to work in the laundry. Andy's like, well, no, but, you know, I'm here. I'm going to do it. He is uh, assigned to the prison library to assist Brooks Hadlin 
be a librarian who has been in the prison since 1905, has a pet crow named Jake, which we meet for the first time, actually, Andy's first day. Right. He's a baby that fell out of the nest, and he takes a maggot that Andy had found in his food. The prison system's fucked up, y'all. And feeds it to Jake and is like, I'm going to let him go, you know, when he gets better. But right now he's healing. And then we've got two years later, the full-grown crow that right. just lives with Brooks. And he's like, uh, he's, has, he's been the librarian since 1912. And Andy's like, well, what, have you ever had an assistant? And he goes, no, there's not much to the job, right? Like, he just puts books on the, there's almost no library. Right. He puts the books that he has on a cart and walks through now, the... one of the reasons why this movie affected me... Yeah. I worked at a place called Book People. Yeah. This is where I made some very good friends I have, I've had for the rest of my life. This is 20 years ago. And uh, we would push these carts, and the whole job was you're pushing this cart around to different sections of this enormous warehouse, and you're pulling books off the shelf, putting them in a bin, and then they get sent to... Order to, fulfillment. To write. Right. And uh, my good friend Alan, who was very fond of this movie, he quotes it at length, uh, he would push the book, books, book, and Yeah, because just, this whole part where, where Brooks is telling him what, uh, what it, but he just, books, he just, right. books, books, no, books. And what's sad, for a person, and the two people that you're listening to right now have had bookstore careers. Yes. Yeah. Well. We worked in... In all, I mean, myself of all ends of the industry, the publishing and the other end and the, the distribution and whatever. And one of the, the the great shames of it is when you find out what the prison library is. It's Reader's Digest condensed books, right? Which they definitely have in this thing, right? And it's terrible because it's it's not even a real book. It's parts of a book, like the exciting parts put together. It's like a showreel right. right. for a book. So yeah, it's it's sad. Very, very sad. Yeah. So he's like, well, why are you getting in a... Why me? Why now? And then, of course, immediately a prison guard shows up and asks for help, some sort of financial help. And then it grows. It says um, that year he did the taxes for half the prison guards. The Mm -hmm. next year it was all of them. The year after that, they moved the intramural... A baseball game, and he did all of the prison guards in the mm. entire area, and also did the warden's taxes. Mm. Uh, the financial thing, let's just, just go through that. He is doing all of this work, but he's also the warden starting in 1963, so we're skipping ahead a little and we'll go back, mm-hmm. um, begins um exploiting prison labor to get to bid for public works projects because he's basically got free labor so he can underbid anybody else who has to pay you know a wage to his employers or employees so not only does he profit by undercutting skilled labor costs but he gets it from both ends when he gets bribes from companies so that he won't bid on certain things. So he's making a lot of money illegally that Andy is use, is laundering. 
uh, and he's laundering using an alias, and that alias is Randall Stevens. I wonder if the Randall is related to Flag. I don't know. (laughs) Randall Stevens is a figment of uh, Andy Dufresne's imagination. He does not exist, but he has a driver's license. Hello, 1960s. (laughs) He didn't have to take a test for it. He has a driver's license, a birth certificate. He's got all of the things that you... A social security card. He's got all the things you need to make an identity. Right. He does not exist. So if something happens, it won't come back to him or the warden. So in 1954, Brooks has served 50 years um, and he is paroled. And there is a lovely sort of interstitial of Brooks going out in the world. And it's told with a voiceover of Brooks and he's written a letter back. Uh, And he talks about how he has gotten a place at a halfway house and a job bagging groceries he's marvels at the speed of everything when he before he went away it was 1905 he'd seen one motor vehicle right which is crazy this is and he was released in 1954 and there are cars everywhere this is an indication about how fast technology moved at the beginning of the last century Mm -hmm. one of the things i like to tell people is that H.G. Wells, the writer, yeah. wrote a science fiction novel about the possibility of flying machines. He wrote several. By the end of his life, he had lived through the Second World War and seen an atomic bomb dropped in Hiroshima. So the amount of technology that changed when flight was a probability, right. possibility, possibility, to... But a science fiction right, writer. Yeah. To, to Fleets of aircraft, yep. bombers, fighters, all these other things. It was stunning because he thought of it as the far, the far, far future, future. And he would name or he would write his stories about a distant future or a strangely experimental aircraft. Yeah. And what he described sounds so ridiculous by our standards. But to think that in one lifetime, yep. last yep. 50 years of your life, you saw this jump in technology mm-hmm. that started with people wearing gliders and trying yeah. to jump off of hills. It's wild well, because I aircraft. think. Um, and futurists know this now, but I don't think we understood how fast, yeah. especially as communication in- increases, how fast every year human knowledge d- doubles. And by yeah. what I mean is in the year 2019, human knowledge will get, w- will advance as far as it had advanced all the way up until 2019. Yeah. There has to be so at it's some an point. exponential thing. It'll go back down. Yeah. And it's focused. It's not like these huge things like we figured out flight. Yeah. But it's targeted to pharmaceuticals or it's targeted to computer science and things like that. So it's a lot of knowledge, yeah. but it's compressed into smaller areas. One of the sad things is so there's such a lack of ambition with it, too. And I think that's an issue that for some older people like me... Who actually saw a moon landing? If we could just spend 2020 focusing on climate change, right. like around the world, oh, things could happen. We would fix it. But yeah, that was that's always the issue with some older uh, people, my generation, a little bit older, is that we saw amazing things happen when people really, uh, you know, were able to use this technology to a cause that helped everybody, and now it seems almost like it's being held it's, off. A lot somehow. of it is capitalism. Right. It's end stage capitalism making. Um, the big thoughts 
not profitable. And so they're happening, but they're not getting the support that they need to go forward. Hey, the world is is a problem. (laughs) I just wanted to make sure the light was on outside. Okay, so. So Brooks is unable to adjust. Um, Before he's released, he holds Haywood hostage, puts a knife to his throat because it's the only way they'd let him stay. Right. And he can't bring him. uh, He's not a killer, and he's certainly not a killer at 70. He does end up hanging himself in the halfway house. And it is sad. And but it is a five minute sort of digression. Digression. Uh, And one of the things that when I said Frank Darabont was a startup, he wanted more outer shots of the prison. Uh And Deacon said specifically, if we don't do that. It feels more claustrophobic. And so this is well, one you, of the... He, that was the intention, to feel more claustrophobic right. rather than... Yes, we want, it, we want it to feel claustrophobic by not showing these big vistas of the whole prison. Mm-hmm. But this piece, and it comes probably an hour in, Yeah, mm-hmm. gives the audience a nice break that we didn't even really know we wanted from the darkness and the tightness of the interior shots of the prison to him being out in the world and it is almost like jarring to the senses Uh it's much brighter than the rest of the movie and there's you know sky you don't see sky very much in this movie yeah and he does end up hanging himself now meanwhile we have andy back doing among doing all of the taxes for everybody and and what whatnot he's also the librarian and he begins to write letters to the legislature because there's almost no books right they basically banned them there's almost no books and there's no money for books so he writes a letter a week and he after two years he gets a 200 dollars check and he continues writing <laughs> and after six years he gets a bunch of stuff, like a like a big donation. And then he's like, great. Um, now I'll start writing twice a week. <laughs> and then it ends up where they end up doing a, like the legislature pat- passes $500 a year as a stipend going forward to get him to stop <laughs> writing him letters. I'm like, what he doesn't have anything else to do. He will continue to keep writing to you. This is 20 minutes of one day a week. Now, <laughs> like what I appreciate about this is there's a moment, and it's played for laughs, where they're going through the, the, the his his crew now. His that crew donation. His, yes, his crew. Well, yes, when he has big projects like uh-huh. this first delivery, his crew comes in. So Haywood comes in, Red comes in. Right. It's the people that we see regularly. They're unboxing the... all of these, which would have made a lot of YouTube videos. Yes. But uh, one of the books they find, which is a clue to the direction the movie is about to take, is The Count of Monte Crisco by Alexander Dumas. Yes. Um, this is not Christo. Been, this is you not uneducated. Been, but I don't know if just knowing it, which is a wonderful book, by the way, read it if you get the chance. It probably has one of the first openly gay characters in in literature, Western yeah. literature. Interesting. Um, and a very unrepentant. She does not face punishment for what she is, and it's portrayed very romantically. Oh, nice. Unfortunately, with some of the publishers actually cut that part out of the book. 
at least the, the versions I read as a kid did not have her as a character. Oh, that's rude. She we got reinstated. Like but yeah, she's they're they're dividing everything into areas, right? Uh-huh. So action, adventure, this and the other, and then she, he's like, "Oh, the Count of Monte Cristo, you'd like it. It's about a prison break." And Red goes, "We should put that in education then too, right?" Uh-huh. <laughs> and like in such like. A, <laughs> but the idea that really informs it because like the kind of Monte Cristo about a person who lays a very long plan for revenge, this there's a it's almost like this kickstarts the very long winded but really, really thorough plan for revenge yeah. that he gets. So he and he also finds a record and when he is left alone by the uh warden or the uh guard he plays the record over the PA system. And it's in Italian, so it's an opera record. It's a marriage of Figaro. Uh, and he cranks it up and plays it over the thing. As long as they'll let him, they end up breaking the door down. Uh, and he is put in the hole for two weeks. He says it's the easiest time he ever did. But everybody in the whole place, like, focused on it. Like, they all, t- oh, yeah. it's weird, because they all turn toward the PA speakers, like, they're going to do something, which I think is a well, wild way. I was like, that's bad directing. No, because <laughs> I'll tell you what. I was, uh, I did a week in Manhattan for a friend's graduation from Barnard. And at the end of her graduation, when she actually, she also had an art opening that I was helping install because there were big heavy things that needed to be moved. We all went to Greenwich Village to celebrate. And one member of the party on this crowded subway train in the middle of the night and everyone was exhausted like two in the morning starts singing and i don't remember what she was singing it was yeah but that's a human being doing it you can look at a human being doing it i think the effect that it would have on a group of people who've only heard orders through a pa system yeah maybe they haven't heard any music what the hell is that there is it's funny because i was listening to the case file Uh i was listening to the case file earlier today and they were talking about how in Alcatraz there was music hour before lights uh-huh. out, where if you had an instrument you could just play it, wow. and it's how some people escaped because they hid the sounds that they were making and trying oh, to okay. tunnel in that music hour. That's when they would do it. But there was no music in Shawshank uh, until a little bit later. But yeah, no music, nothing. So and yeah, I think if that was the case, then it really would be startling to hear this music. And it is beautiful. Yeah, no, it is. And Red talks about how he has no idea what those two Italian ladies were saying to each other. And he doesn't want to know. He wants it to be, he likes to believe that it was something so beautiful that there were no words for it. I'm like, I guess no English words then, because they were definitely <laughs> saying words. Well, Italian has better words. Then we have the incorporation of to our group of Tommy Williams, mm-hmm. played by Gil Bellows, who I like very much. Uh, he was incarcerated for burglary in 1965, and Andy at this point is wearing gold glasses, which I love. I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, time has passed. He is wearing gold glasses. So at this point, he's got to be 50, Yeah, right? Uh, he's been there for almost 20 years. Uh and he comes in, and he is a braggart, but he's like a nice guy. He's a goofy guy, but he keeps talking about how yeah. all the all the things that he's broken into. And he's and Andy's like, maybe you should get a different job. Well, Tommy is, and Tommy's like, right. what? 
And he's like, well, you don't seem to be a very good thief because he's been in and out of jail right. since he was 13. If you know a prison, he's done a stretch there. Right. And he's just like, "What? you are not good at thievery because you keep getting caught. And they, they end up... He's not in any way a bad guy. He's not. He's just... He's... He's not, and he was thrown away by, I'm sure, by the educational system. Right. So he doesn't even, he says, I don't read so good. And Andy says, He's well, a father. You don't read he so well. He has a wife well. that he apparently loves. So he's not, he just doesn't see another way of getting anything done. No. And, and like I said, the educational system likely yeah. just throw him away. So if you can't read, what are your job prospects? Right. They're not great. And so Andy teaches him to read and then trains him up. Helps him pass his GED, which he does pass. Uh-huh. Uh, and he finds out that he passes, uh, I believe he's in the hole for playing the music when he finds out. He passes with a C-plus average, which is... A passing grade. Uh, but absolutely admirable for a person mm-hmm. who couldn't read a year ago. Yeah. And, of course, right after he takes the test, he loses his mind. He's like, I failed it. Don't even bother sending it in to get graded. What was the... I wasted a year of my life. Like, he's super upset with himself, but he did end up passing. And then a year later... Oh, Tommy's asking Red what Andy's in for. And Andy says... And Red says, murder. And Tommy's like, no fucking way. That dude is not a murderer. And he's like, his wife... um, he was a banker on the outside, and his wife cheated on him, and he killed them both. Because Red, you could tell him tell yeah. him that you're innocent, but he thinks that you did yeah, it. He's been in there a very long time. Yeah, and everybody says, I didn't do it. The lawyer fucked me. And Tommy instantly is like, oh, shit, because he had been cellmates with somebody who said... Elmo Blatch, which is the most Dickensian name for a criminal. Yeah, it's... Again, if I made up a name like that, you would smack me in the face. (laughs) It's like, no, Yeah, no, 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 don't. Try again. Um, And he said that he had committed... He had broken into this golf pro's house. um, Elmo did. Elmo did. Mm -hmm. Had been stealing shit. The golf pro uh, was there and tried to stop him, and he killed him. And this tasty bitch he was with. And then he starts laughing and he says, that's the best part. She'd been stepping out on her husband and he's the one who went down for the murder. Well, well, this is what Andy has been saying the whole time. It was the one-armed man. That's a different movie. Yeah. (laughs) Well, we never see Elmo's other arm, now that I think of it. That's true. We don't see either arm. It could be a one-armed man. So Andy goes to the warden. Like, this is my chance, this is my chance for freedom. And of course the warden is not going to let him out. He is laundering money for him. Right. He, you are fucked now because the warden owns you. You can't leave. So, um, Norton refuses to listen. Andy mentions the money laundering and Norton sends him to solitary for a month. Which is a very long time. Right. Generally, it's like even for gang rape or beating, um, what's his name? It was two uh, weeks, Diamond. one week, two weeks. Right. Yeah, that's it. Because you're li- you literally don't come out of there. You see them when they come out right. and they are filthy. They're shaggy. They're unshaven. They don't leave this dark, small pit. Mm-hmm. And Norton... Uh, brings Tommy out into the yard, gives him a cigarette, and says, you know, 
is what you said true? And he's like, it's absolutely true. And Norton says, will you testify to it? And he says, I absolutely will. And he goes, that's what I thought. And he walks away and he gives a nod. And Hadley, our friendly neighborhood guard, is up in the tower. And he shoots Tommy five times in the chest, four times in the chest. And then they say he was, it's a shame. It's weird that he was trying to escape. He had less than a year on his bid. And so when Andy comes out, he's like a little bit broken. He's a little well, bit broken. At this point, he is. But I he said, is also done. <laughs> he he is, is like, well, I had a life in here and that was fine. But uh, nah. Follow the example. Fuck this noise. <laughs> Of his literary hero, Edmond Dantes, and he is now going to make his very elaborate... Yeah. And it becomes, at this point, almost a caper film, but done in reverse. And it's done super... Like, it's quick. It's in short succession. Once it happens, it really picks up an amazing amount of momentum very quickly. Which means it's been in the works for a long time. It's just time to do it. Mm -hmm. So Andy talks to Red um, out in the yard and does say... He talks about his wife and how... It's his fault she died because he was a difficult... She, he pushed her away. Mm-hmm. And if she hadn't been in this dude's house, she'd still be alive. He, she says, I didn't pull the trigger, but it's my fault. And he talks about where he would want to go, uh, which is Siwatanejo, which is not a real Good place. Good Lord, woman. Good job. <laughs> it's not a real place, but it's supposed to be on the Pacific uh, uh-huh. coast of Mexico, a place with no past and no future. With no memory. No, okay. That's but you good. could just be you, and you don't have to carry around the scarlet letter of whatever shape is on you. He also says, if you get released, you have. To, I want you to go to this um, this hayfield in Buxton. There's something there that I want you to have. Uh, and then Red's like worried about his well-being and Haywood's like um I gave him a piece of rope yeah he came to the shop and asked for a piece of rope and, and Red's like Jesus Christ did you give it to him and he goes yeah how the fuck was I supposed to know what was going on he asked for rope I gave him rope and so they are afraid that he is going to have killed himself that he's talking like a man at the end right, right. Uh, the next this day this is his resignation yeah the next day, there's roll call, and the guards find Andy's cell empty. Uh, they bring Red in and say, you guys are thick as thieves. Did he say anything? And Red's like, fucking no. He didn't say shit to me. I literally thought you were going to find him hanging in here. I don't know where he is. And angry, Norton picks up uh, one of the rocks that uh, Andy has polished into a shape because he was... Um, Oh, that's the other thing. He does use that rock hammer to polish right, making and chest shape board chest, really chest beautiful pieces. pieces. Yeah. Right. And he throws it at the poster on his wall, which was Rita Hayworth, and then it was upgraded to Marilyn Monroe, and now it is Raquel Welsh in, was that the 50-foot tall woman? or No, no, no. Raquel Welsh in 1 million B.C. 1 million B.C., that's right. right. She looks huge in it, so, but, yeah, no, okay. And the rock goes right through the poster, which is not what would happen if you threw a poster that was stuck to a wall. And he puts his whole fist through the poster and then pulls the thing up, and there's this big hole. Big enough for an Andy to get through. Yeah, big enough. And when 
Red got him the rock hammer. He he figured it'd take six hundred years to tunnel through the wall. And turns out it took Andy nineteen years to dig through the wall with it. And then there comes a really interesting montage of just how it was all how done. How it was done. And so a lot of the behavior that you've seen earlier in the film is really his long term plan. Long, yes. Yeah. So he has um he was carving his name into the wall when a chunk fell out. And he realized sort of how soft it was. That's when he got the Hayworth, Rita Hayworth poster 20 years ago, mm-hmm. right? One of his favorite pastimes was bringing chunks of the wall out into the yard and shaking them out of his pants. Mm-hmm. So you see that. That's like a very iconic thing from this movie. Um, he, The night before, he had switched the books Every night he would work in the warden's office and seal up the books and um, and the paperwork in the warden's safe, which was hidden behind what did the what did the needlepoint say? Something about God is watching you. <laughs> um, but he switched out the books. We see him switch them out. Um, we had seen the scene earlier. We hadn't seen him switch it out. Um, and he goes through, it's a stormy night, and he's going to break into a sewage pipe. And so he times the striking of the sewage pipe with a big rock with the thunder claps that are right. happening. Uh, when he gets through, a fountain of sewage comes out, but then he for looks... For no discernible reason. For no discernible reason, because then he looks into the pipe and there's just a, a low trickle at the bottom of it. I'm, I'm like, where did all that pressure come from? This is more from? sewage than anyone ever really needs to it's, see. It was, I was just like, we didn't need, we didn't need that. He's going to get in there. So right. we didn't need it to like geyser up like that. Whatever. So a it's strange fine. directorial choice. And he crawls through 500 yards of shit to the river outside where they find the rock hammer just down to a nub. No, this is later on because you're discussing. He gets out, Dufresne, during the thunderstorm. Yeah. And the next day when they come by, they find what's left of the rock hammer and he'd actually stolen the warden's wardrobe. Yes, the warden had had him doing his dry cleaning and whatever and polishing his shoes. So he was wearing the warden's shoes when he did it. Now, we don't see, they don't show, in the book I believe they talk about how he had bundled that all up and tied it to him. That's what the... It's in the film, but it's not one of the things that's that That's what the rope is right. for, is he ties this bundle of the paperwork and the clean clothes and the soap, because that's the other thing they found, find his, his prison clothes and the soap in the river, uh, along with the rock hammer. That's all that they find. And... That, so, but he is tied up like a, a, a bundle and tied that to his leg and like drags it with him through so that he can change and be presentable and not be a convict, right? Right. Um, and then he goes into several banks as one Randall Stevens with all the proper documentation and cashes out over $370,000. I didn't look it up. I wanted to look it up. Inflation. Holy Lord. $370,000 in 1967 is equivalent to the purchasing power of $2.7 million. And then he, at some point, we don't see this part, goes up to Buxton, (laughs) 
And then he he gets Red gets a postcard from Fort Hancock, Texas, which is right on the border. And he pictures Andy driving his own car across the border and into Mexico. And he is also, once he has removed all of this money, sent the lovely package of proof to the newspaper. Not to, I think it's like the Portland Press or something, Press Democrat or something. It's the Daily Bugle. I mean, it isn't the Daily Bugle, though. No, no, it's the, the, the newspaper. And that's that was one thing I noticed right away. I wonder if that was some sort of reference that that uh, that we're supposed to get. And Stephen King puts a lot of those into his work. Good morning, Portland Daily Bugle. And what you hear in the background right. as this reporter is unwrapping this thing. And so Hadley is put under arrest, and he goes peacefully, more peacefully than you'd think, uh, Norton commits suicide to avoid arrest. He puts a bullet in his head. He has a gun out and he's facing it, you know, aiming it at the door as warrants are there for his arrest and there's marshals and whatnot. And he, they said, make it easy on yourself. And he's right. like, yeah, nope. the easiest it's going to be is if I just stop being now. And so that is what he does. Now we see our third parole hearing with Red, Red's third parole hearing, mm-hmm. uh, wherein he is done with all of it. He's like, I don't know what the fuck you mean by rehabilitated. Do I regret my actions? Absolutely. Not because you want me to, but because there's so much I want to tell that young stupid kid that did that thing. And I feel like the reason why this parole hearing is successful is because of what he said. Yes, no, of that course, but it's also it's not like a little I'm bit I'm trying of, to coach you through it. Yes, I'm yeah. rehabilitated, blah, blah. No, it's like he honestly... He, yeah, he's, he's like, a, so stamp whatever right. you're going to stamp because I don't give a fuck. Like, but he's also right. a 60-something-year-old man, so less of a threat, right? Yeah. They've taken... What Red says at one point, they say life, and that's what they take. Yeah. And he is paroled, and he is released to the same room, because Brooks carved Brooks was here, uh-huh. in the wall above where he hung himself, and he is given the same bagging job, uh, and he does not think that he is going to make it, because he is institutionalized. Uh, but he does go up to B- Buxton. Uh, uh, he hitchhikes up there in a very sturdy-looking truck. <laughs> we both were like, that truck. That's a tank. Uh, and finds a cash containing cash and a letter asking him to come to Zihuatanajo. And Red, then we see him buy a bus ticket to Fort Hancock, Texas. He says, this is the last law that I'll break. Or I broke another law that day. Second, I think my second is what he says. And, and that was parole violation, but I don't think they'll come after me. Uh, and then he crosses the border into Mexico. You see him on the bus with the bus window open and him he's like hanging out of it like it's a car. It's yeah. wild. I'm just like, that is not how buses work anymore. And he's like, I am hopeful. I have hope and I hope that I will see my friend. That is that feels like where it's going to end because of that voiceover. Uh-huh. That is where Frank Darabont wanted it to end. But a producer said, no, we need to see them meet on the beach. So there is another scene with a very blue ocean 
as blue as Red hoped that it would be. Uh, and Andy is fixing up a boat on the beach, which was what his goal was. And you see him walking, or Red walking towards him, and then uh, Andy jumps off the boat, and then they embrace. That is that is when we roll credits. <laughs> but there's no sound over that. There's no there's music, but there's no voiceover over that. Uh, and that is the Shawshank Redemption. Now, this is a modern classic, yes. right? What do you think about it, having seen it all together now? I think, you know... Does it still deserve that status to your mind? There's I some do. some classics that age I think very so. poorly. No, I think this... Here's, here's the reality of it. It mm. shows how fucking brutal prison is in some right. cases, which I think needs to be seen more because it's fucked up and we need to do something about it. So I'm on board for that. The cast is so good. There are some issues with the direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially, you know, I was looking at the some of the stuff, on the production notes and mm-hmm. things. And there was a lot of tension on the set, apparently. Frank Darabont, as we said, this was his first, the first film that he directed. There was a lot of tension with him wanting to do multiple takes mm-hmm. that were not different they did this movie did not need to take three full months of six day weeks of 18 hour days like it didn't need to do that and it did because he wanted again 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 even if there's physical stuff that is like um i i said before we started the scene where andy comes and asks for the rock hammer is a scene where uh, Morgan Freeman is throwing, he's playing catch. Mm-hmm. Right? So he's throwing a ball repeatedly. We see him throw a ball three or four times. That scene took nine hours to shoot. Right. And he's throwing a ball for nine hours. And so the next day, he was in a sling. That's not, for ostensibly the same, there was not, you're not going to get that many different reads. What are no. you doing? I think that, um, <sighs> and this does sound, it reminds you of the stories that, came out of the set of The Outlaw with Howard Hughes, his first time directing, really. Or not really his first time directing. He was just very bad with expressing what he wanted to, so he would Mm -hmm. do take after take after take after take after take. And so sometimes he'd wind up there the entire day doing one scene, and so it fell really far behind schedule. Yeah. The film succeeds because of the strength of the material and the crew of people that he put together. He turns out to be a better director later on than he gets a lot of credit for. Well, I mean, sure, but... But this first film, he does not... And and he really could have leaned more heavily on the talent that they got. Yeah. Like, trust in the talent. Because you got good mm-hmm. talent. Right. Across the board, everybody is doing good work. And to push them like they don't know what they're doing, yeah. like it's their first time, is not yeah, good. It's sort of surprising <laughs> the film turned out this well. I mean, there are some story- films with really troubled production histories that turn out a really great product in the end. I guess we'd have to add this to one of them as one of them because it, from what I've read also, it seems like there was a lot of conflict between the director, between the actors and the director, between the cinematographer and the director, and the commonality of all those is the director. So, yeah. Yeah. And it was nominated for seven Academy Awards in 1995. It's the most nominated. It won zero. Uh, (laughs) Zero of them. 
But it was up for Best Picture, Best Actor uh, for Morgan Freeman, uh, Best Screenplay, Best Cinematography, Best Editing, Best Sound Mixing. The sound and the music was very good in this. Yeah. And Best Original Score. And it did not win anything. It was also nominated for two Golden Globes, Best Performance by an Actor for Freeman, and Best Screenplay for Darabont. But I don't believe it won any of those either. Robbins and Freeman were both nominated for Outstanding Performance by a Male Actor in a Leading Role in the inaugural Screen Actors Guild Awards. So it was nominated for a lot of stuff, but it did not win anything. The original story is in the same book as Stand By Me, which is why talking about it and marketing it like with Stand By Me as a from the mind that brought you right. makes a lot of sense. It's in different seasons. It's the it's the spring uh, entry, Hope Springs Eternal, and it is the short story is called Rita Hayworth and Shawshank Redemption. No, the I get up every time, uh, and it is loosely based on the Leo Tolstoy short story God Sees the Truth but Waits. <laughs> it's terrifying, but yeah. And, uh, oh, apparently, there's also a screen, uh, stage play adaptation, which I think would be difficult to do. Maybe not, though. It's almost... There's a lot of characters talking to each other, and the action only really comes together in the end of the film. You'd need a lot of um, extras, I feel like, in the yeah. background. I believe a lot of Red, a lot of the voiceover may come directly from the book. Morgan Freeman stated in an interview that the novella is his favorite book. Oh, really? Huh. So, I don't know if it's true. But I think it's good. I think it holds up. And like I said, I think it holds up even better if you do watch the whole thing all the way through. I think that it's one of the... Uh, uh, watching it again, it's aged very well. Because the thing... And it helps that it's a period piece. So it doesn't become dated in that respect. There's times when you're watching some of the older Stephen King stuff where, or even any of the older uh, films, they're so, there's such an attempt to be current that it winds up suffering from it. But yeah, this one really worked. I felt that it, it held together as a drama really well. The characters interacted. You felt real sympathy between uh, Red and Dufresne. So let me tell you a story where okay. this would have been terrible. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it would have been terrible, but it wouldn't have been this. <clears throat> After Frank Darabont pitched Shawshank to the studio, Rob Reiner offered $2.5 million for the script to star. Tom Cruise as Andy Dufresne Ooh. and Harrison Ford as Red. Well, Harrison, uh, the Red character wasn't black. No, the, I believe he's right, white in the so, book. Um, yeah, I don't know that Tom Cruise though. Yeah, no. Oh, no. It does make more sense that somebody has to squeeze through a pipe for a long time because... That he'd be five feet tall? Tim Robbins is a but big dude. I think the thing is that Tom Cruise has never... This is going to sound really mean. Has never been able to protect, project the intelligence that Tom... Um, Tom uh, Tim Robbins. Tim Robbins can. I was thinking of Tom Robbins, the author. Oh, yeah, different. Uh, Tim Robbins can and communicate silently. 
I don't think that he would have gotten that. I think it would have been ultimately a very different kind of movie. Yeah. No, it would have been. Although Harrison Ford and Morgan Freeman do have something in common, which is they don't have to try very hard. You know, they both have the quality of it's right there. Um, But, yeah, I really like Morgan Freeman in this part. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, also, Andy was hiding the rock hammer in his cop- the copy of his Bible. Right. So he leaves it for the warden that says, you're right, salvation lies within. And then there's a little, like a little nest cut out. I was wondering, so that you see um, the mugshot of young Red a mm-hmm. bunch of times, because every time he's rejected, right. you see the mugshot of him getting checked in. Uh, it's not a picture of Morgan Freeman, it's a picture of his son. Oh, really? That makes sense. So It carries along the image that, the idea that he's been in there so long, that there's an adult man and the, 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 the child who committed the crime. And now I'm going to send an open letter to IFC. Dear IFC, you have listed a thing of 15 things you may not have known, and the last thing is the tree where Red finds Andy's letter isn't in Fort Hancock, Texas. It's in Ohio's Malabar Farm State Park. That's fine. It's also not in Texas when we watch the movie. It's in Buxton, Maine. <laughs> so there. Okay. But it's also not in Maine. It's in Ohio. Okay. So I say watch this movie. It's very good. Stephen King can do claustrophobia really well. He can uh-huh. do Lost really well, especially Lost based on drinking. Um, there are no women... <laughs> Well, kind of. There are no. There are no women. There's a not there's a. No woman. I think you get one woman speaking part, and it's one of the women cashiers at the store. Well, you get the moaning part, which is his wife at the beginning of the film. Oh, right. And then you do have the uh, occasional interruption of Rita Hayworth and other people in photographs. Yeah, that's fine. Other than that, there are no. There women are no in this women film. in this. For all intents and purposes, there are no women in this film, and I think that actually helps right. because Stephen King is not great at writing full fleshed out women characters. He didn't have to in this. So <laughs> great. When we get to the mist, we'll see some weirdness. Um, Frank Darabont was also the person who adapted that. So. And Green Mile. He does get better, y'all. But at the directing part. Um, so that is what I have to say about The Shawshank Redemption. Watch it. What do you have to say, Ben? No, no, I, I said this. I Same? Alright. Do you have anything else you want to recommend to no, our I, listeners? I, I haven't caught up on anything. No, well, yeah, we're in, in the, the middle of a we're bunch of things. A middle of a bunch of things. Um, I haven't caught up on any one thing where I can recommend it because I always like to be. If it's a series, I want to be further into it. And the things that I'm really um, into right now, watching it, the terror, mm-hmm. which is amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then other things where I want to Ooh, see. Ooh, but y'all don't eat while you're watching it. Oh, yeah. We Whoa. made the mistake of, of eating while we were watching one of the episodes, and that, that wasn't good. It wasn't good. It was a bad choice. But, um, but yeah, I, I, I really... I'm in the middle of so many things. I don't have a recommendation or a clear one for you, aside from corn mazes. Just find an easier one than I did. <laughs> do, <laughs> there you go. Do you have a recommendation? Um, This is tricky, because I'm also in a bunch of things. But... I would say, if you are looking for a dark comedy, 
Schitt's Creek on Netflix. I finally watched some of it. I'm only like six episodes or eight episodes into it. There are five seasons. I thought it was going to be super cringy and terrible, uh, given the premise. And I pretty much love it. And I'm in love with Daniel Levy, who is Eugene Levy's son. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's also gay, so he'll never love me back. But Aww. I can love him from afar. And that is fine. Like, I, he's the creator and one of the main writers on the show, along with his dad. And yeah, everything that he's doing is very good. It's, uh, it's definitely fluffy enough to just put on and kind of get lost in, right. which is what I've needed lately. So that's pretty good. Shit's Creek. It's spelled S C H I T T apostrophe S. Creek the normal way. All right. So next week, per your request, Lemuel, mm-hmm. we're doing a 100th anniversary special, but we haven't talked about what it is. What are yes. we doing? We are going to talk about what that is. Yes. You'll have to come I back next we week to find a, out. We, we will have a clip show without clips. Well, we'll just remember. Remember that time that I completely we're forgot. We're definitely not doing that. That's right. terrible and uh, nobody I just, wants to hear I, it. I, I want to look back and first apologize for the first season of the show where I had no idea what I was doing. And um, encourage the second season to show where I had slightly more idea what I was doing. Just knew that the only thing I did know from that first season is I really didn't like Twin Peaks. I really feel like what we're really going to do next week is watch the stand part one because we're going to bail on this idea. But we'll see. You should tune in and find out. The next thing we are watching is the, the stand, stand miniseries. So, and we are going to watch each part individually and talk about each part each individually. very long. It's movie length. Mm. <laughs> so, and uh, there are too many characters. The, the, the recap on the entirety of the thing would be uh, ludicrous. And we're not doing that to you or us. So, next up on watching is The Stand. But first, we're going to do our 100th episode. Tune in to find out what that's going to be. Um, if you want to give us ideas... We'll take them. We're on the Facebook. On the Facebook. On the Facebook. It makes you sound like me. Latecomers Podcast on Facebook. uh, At Latecomers Pod on Twitter. At Latecomers Podcast at... Nope. Latecomers Pod at gmail.com is our email address. I answered those, but I don't because I'm bad. But I love getting them. I will answer, I promise. Someday. I point you to reply all and email that forgiveness. I think that's everything. I think that is. And with that, I remind you to take your medicine. And we remind you. Better, better late than, than never. never.